welcome to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring readers more books to enjoy and to help authors find more joy in their writing. I am your host, Marissa Meyer. Thank you for joining me. Uh, There was like a ton of stuff making me happy this week. Honestly, guys, this is a kind of a big week for me. Um, We're recording this quite a bit in advance um, because I didn't want it to intrude on my vacation plans. But as of this recording, um, I'm about to turn in Cursed, my next book that's coming out in November. I've got like three more chapters to write and it is due in just a couple of days. So, oh, it will feel so good to have it turned in. Of course, I'm going to be running my half marathon here in a week in Disney World. I think I already talked about that before, but it's like taking over my life right now. Those two things are pretty much all I can think about, Cursed and Disney World. And then on top of that, in I think it was in our last episode, I talked about how, actually it might have been two episodes ago. I don't know. My schedule's all off. Um, I have writer brain right now, I think. Uh, But I talked about how we finally got to announce this project that I was working on last fall that I am so, so excited for. Um, So just in case you missed that announcement, we are going to be releasing a brand new Lunar Chronicles novella. It is coming out in ebook only on March 15th to coincide with the release of the Cinder 10-year anniversary. It is called Cinder's Adventure, Get Me to the Wedding. So yeah, there's a wedding. But more than that, it is an interactive story experience, which means you, the readers, get to guide Cinder down her path and make her choices for her and see where it takes you in the story. And what was really fun for me writing this is that As Cinder goes off on these different pathways, you know, she kind of falls down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and comes in contact with like every character I've ever written just about. Um, So there's the Renegades characters, the Heartless characters, they are all in there. It is a truly wacky, silly story, but it was just so much fun to write. So that's coming out on March 15th, which I think by the time this episode goes up is like next week. That is soon. I can't believe it. Uh, It is available for pre-order. I really hope you will check it out. Um, Also, just as an FYI, I am going to be donating all of my royalties from that project to First Book, which is one of my favorite literacy-based organizations. So yay, so much exciting things happening. And of course, now I'm all breathless because I'm like super, super excited talking about this stuff. But of course, I am so happy to be talking to today's guest. She holds a bachelor's in English from Yale University and is currently getting her master's degree in creative writing prose fiction from the University of East Anglia. Her work has been featured in the LA Review, the Washington Post, among others, and she is the founder of Disabled Kidlet Writers. She's also a competitive fencer and fencing coach. Her debut YA novel, One for All, comes out tomorrow on March 8th. Please welcome Lily Lanoff. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm just going to start out by saying that I loved this book, all capitals. I can't wait to talk about it, and I can't wait to recommend it 
to everyone who loves really kick butt female characters sword fighting in like historical Paris. <laughs> it's all the things I've ever wanted. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. it, there's a reason why I like calling the book Sisterhood of the Stab Stab. And <laughs> I think that you just encapsulated everything I, <laughs> that the Sisterhood of the Stab Stab is. I love it. It's a super super fun story. Um, and it, it truly was like exactly the story that I wanted to be reading this week. So thank you. And congratulations for the launch of your debut novel. How are you feeling? I'm feel it's, it's exciting. Uh, it's this strange, surreal feeling of the manifestation of my childhood dream, because <laughs> I've always wanted to be an author. So it's, it's very strange to finally have this hardcover book that has my name on it. Uh, it's also incredibly exciting. Uh, I'm already getting a lot of um, messages and letters from readers and early readers who um, have really, really, um, who One for All has really resonated with. And it's so it's exciting, it's nerve wracking, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And I'm just really thankful uh, that this day is finally approaching. It's finally approaching. It's almost here. It is so exciting. Um, and, and that is a perfect seg into the first thing that I ask all of our guests. Um, you mentioned that this was a childhood dream of yours. Uh, so I'd love to know your origin story as a writer. How did it go from being a childhood dream to now having your name on a book cover? So I knew that I wanted to be a writer since around when I was five years old. And I don't think I really knew what the concept of an author was. At least I really don't think five-year-old Lily did, but uh, I knew that I wanted to be the person who created the stories and the books that I read and that were read to me when I was little. So I proceeded to become that girl and that girl being the one who has a notebook underneath one arm and a book underneath the other. And that's how she walks around for, I mean, practically my entire childhood and whenever anybody asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, I said, I'm going to be a writer. And uh, it, you know, it, people thought it was very sweet and very precocious. And then they realized that uh, my answer remained the same into my, you know, into being a teenager and into being an adult. Oh, okay. Well, maybe she's actually going to do this. Uh, so I uh, did a lot of, you know, writing summer camps when I was a teenager. Uh, the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards was a huge, uh, just a huge push for me. And uh, their recognition was really helpful in getting me uh, kickstarted in terms of my writing career. Uh, I started writing a few op-eds when I was in college and those were published. So I was figuring out how to navigate writing fiction and nonfiction. And uh, uh, I taught myself how to uh, query agents on my twin XL bed in my dorm room in college with the agent directory, uh, the, the printed out one highlighting names and seeing who 
represented YA, which I think is very, it's very different for authors now. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I ended up finding representation um, and a few different books later and a very long time on submission later. Mm. Uh, my book is actually a book. <laughs> <laughs> so this was not the book that got you your agent. Oh, no, no. Um, so I don't really know if we can call the first book I wrote a novel because I was 12 and it really wasn't it's it's going to remain in the drawer locked away for the rest of my life. Nobody will ever read this. <laughs> but um, I wrote, I think what I would consider my first real novel when I was in high school and I finished it while I was in college and I taught myself um, how to query, to query that novel. And I got a little bit of interest, but not a lot. Uh, but the the good thing about it was that I, I had learned how to query properly mm. by doing that. So when I wrote my next novel, I knew how, I, how to write the query letter. I knew which agents I wanted to query. So when I received representation, that process was pretty quick. Uh, and then I was on submission with that novel for two years. Oh, wow. And that novel, uh, I don't, I hate the word died. I, I hate the term died on submission because to me, the book still lives on. I'd love to see it published one day. But while I was on submission, I was working on One for All. Um, and I went on submission with One for All, I think in, gosh, would it have been the end of 2018? Uh, yeah, the end of 2018, and I was on submission with One for All for a year. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, take me through the day that your agent called you up and was like, I know it's been a year, but guess what? Oh, oh so I think that uh, we had, I, I didn't really have that exact call because uh, to the dismay of my agent, I'm incredible. I'm, you know, the positive optimistic side of me likes to say I'm proactive the negative side of me likes to say you're a little bit nudgy Louie <laughs> um, <laughs> okay so to be I, a little bit nudgy <laughs> so I, I would email her say hey what's going on do we know what is anybody liking it or reading it and um my editor Melissa Warden had emailed us saying hey I really love this I'm not finished yet but can you send me some more information and materials? So we had a feeling that maybe this was going to be it. And I knew that she was taking it to acquisitions. And that day was the most stressful day of my entire mm. life because I knew that acquisitions was, the meeting was happening at some point during that day, but I didn't know when. So I uh, was staying with a family friend and oh, poor, I, I feel so bad for them because they had to put up with me just pacing the entire day, trying to go, okay, well, okay, well it, maybe it's a lunch meeting. And then after lunch, okay, maybe it's not a lunch meeting. And the email slash call from my agent came in, I want to say around 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. And I just burst into tears. Yeah. <laughs> 
I also burst into tears. I actually, I remember like getting the call in the morning from my agent and then I like totally held it together for like the entire day until my husband got home from work. And like the moment that he walked in the door, just like tears, kids came flooding forward, all the emotion. Oh gosh. That's so impressive that you managed to hold it together for an entire day though. Yeah. Huge news. Oh gosh. Such, such an incredible moment. Um, okay. Well, I am so happy that the book found its editor, found its home is mm-hmm. now coming out, uh, for people to read, for me to read. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell listeners what is one for all about? Okay. Uh, so one for all, uh, is a gender bent reimagining of the three musketeers in which a girl with a chronic illness and that chronic illness is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, trains as a musketeer and uncovers secrets, sisterhood, and self-love. That was a very succinct. (laughs) (laughs) I've been practicing. (laughs) Here's my elevator pitch. Um, Okay. So the moment that I heard about this book, gender bent three musketeers, I was like, I will, I would like to read that email author, ask for podcast immediately. Um, I love the three musketeers. Uh, I love anything to do with, you know, Paris and this time period. And then hearing that we're going to have females in the lead roles. Mm -hmm. Like it's just such a great concept. Um, So I am curious because I also know that you're a fencer. So, and I want to talk about fencing as well for you. What came first, the interest in fencing or the interest in the three musketeers? Oh, definitely the interest in fencing. Um, I remember I was at a summer camp for, I think it was for art, an art summer camp of some sort. And they were bringing in people who um, had different professions each day. And for some reason, one day they brought in a fencer. And this is strange because there's maybe five professional fencers in the entire world. It's not a professional sport. You don't make money as a fencer. So I don't know how or why they coordinated it like that. But this woman came in and she was talking about fencing. And I was just looking up at her and I remembered, oh my gosh, She's so cool. And all my favorite childhood movies were Mulan and The Princess Bride. Oh my gosh, I want to do that. I need to do that. And at that point, I had pretty much tried every single sport known in existence. I tried swimming, soccer, basketball, track and field, skating, horseback riding, uh, golf, pretty much everything because I wasn't a very coordinated child. And my parents thought, yes, let's get Lily into sports. She will be less clumsy. <laughs> and uh, none of that really worked. However, it's very counterintuitive. <laughs> yes. However, I came home that day and I said, Mom, I want to do the sport because I want to hit people with swords. And she said, okay. <laughs> so uh, I joined with a friend and I was the only girl in my class. I think it was maybe a class of 12. So it was me and 11 little boys when I was eight or nine years old. And I really loved the sport. Somehow it was a sport that I was good at, which was a new thing for me. 
And I knew that I wanted to get to the point where I could compete. So I switched fencing clubs so I could be in a class with other girls because at the national competitive level of fencing, there's women's fencing and there's men's fencing. At the regional level, there's mixed events. But uh, for the events that I knew that I wanted to participate in at the national level, I knew that I had to practice fencing other girls. And I switched fencing clubs. And that was when during the summer fencing camps, we started watching movies like The Man in the Iron Mask or The Three Musketeers. And that's when I first really started to love The Three Musketeers and the storytelling and this slightly off, slightly fantastical version of Paris that some that is historical, but it's also not. There's something off about it. There's something dark. Uh, and I loved all the fencing. That being said, I was also taken aback by where are all the girls with swords? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where are all the women with swords? This is strange. And uh, as I grew up, I realized that, you know, the Three Musketeers um, represented to a lot of people this very specific type of masculinity in term. And what I mean by that is it's like this type of masculinity that is equivalent to, you know, swashbuckling and uh, sleeping with lots of women and <laughs> getting into lots of um and doing lots of crimes and in the name of the king, but really, how are you getting away with stuff like that? No. Uh, and I, when uh, I was thinking about starting to write one for all, I thought, wouldn't it be cool <laughs> if I took my favorite parts of the Three Musketeers, which is, of course, the fencing and the elements of brotherhood and fraternity and this really profound sense of loyalty Uh, And what if I did that with girls? And what if I did that with women? Because I didn't have any stories like that when I was growing up. I love it. No, I completely agree. I think that the world was missing this and I'm so happy that it's now here. I want everyone to go read it. Um, If they have any interest in this sort of thing, I love like all the things you're talking about, the swashbuckling and the debonair attitude and all of that. But seeing it now for women, it's just, Mm-hmm. It's really fun. And like, we've waited too long for this. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you get the idea, you're going to do a, a kind of feminist retelling of Three Musketeers. What was the research process like? How much were you drawing on the original source material? Okay. So whew, um, the research was intense. Uh, I have a bookmark file tab on my laptop that is just full with JSTOR articles and blog posts and videos on YouTube of reenactments of court videos so I could correctly describe how people placed their arms and hands at different points during the dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I also built upon, I started taking French when I was in first grade and I studied French all the way through elementary, middle and high school, and then through half of college. So I was, I was definitely familiar with the language and uh, a lot of those courses also incorporated cultural elements. So I had a lot of the books that I needed. I had a lot of, I knew where to find the resources that I needed. 
So it, it was a mixture of using the knowledge that I already had over the many years of study and then also doing my own research. And I was very, very lucky to be doing part of my research while I was still an undergrad. So I had access to a lot of those um, scholar article websites for free. Mm-hmm. So um, I was able to, you know, look up articles about how the Parisian ports are laid out and what they actually look like, or, um, you know, what kinds of fabrics specifically were uh dresses made out of for young girls versus girls versus women and how uh, women used to uh, cut costs, but also try to mimic pearls, which is what uh, the, one of my favorite fun facts that I learned is about how um, imitation pearls were made out of glass beads and ground down um, fish, um, fish scales. Oh, interesting. And and uh, they and uh, ammonium, and then they would pour that material into a glass bead, and then have it coat the inside, and then fill the rest with wax. And from the outside, it looked like a pearl. So <laughs> all these women were going around with kind of fish scale necklaces <laughs> that to the world looked like pearls. So it was a, a lot of those fun details that don't make it into the book. I was going to um, ask, cause I like, I don't remember this detail. <laughs> oh no, no. I could write so many books. I would love to write more, more books in the one for all universe. Um, just so I could use all the research that I learned. Oh, cause it's all sitting on my computer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is one of the things about research. Um, I, I also, I'm a research fan. I love doing it. I get really excited about all of the just weird, quirky details that you pick up when you're reading about, you know, different, you know, places or time periods or what have you. And yet what actually makes it into the book is so small compared to like this huge amount of information that you have gathered. And there's always a part of me that just like, but, but <laughs> there's more cool stuff. Why can't I fit it in? It's, I, I'm so frustrated by that sometimes. Yeah, me, me too, me too. One for all used to be a lot longer. I tried to fit it in, but I couldn't. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it pays off though. The book, I mean, it was one of those books that was very immersive. And I, I just love all of the, the lush details, the, you know, etiquette of high society and the clothing and the architecture. And it, it really was one of those books that just, puts you there. Um, so it paid off your research worked. (laughs) Thank you so much. No, that it's it's nice to hear that, especially after all, like I said, all the hours of, uh, watching the, the YouTube videos and pressing play and then pause and then play (laughs) and then pause. So I could map out the arm movements at every single second of the dancing. Oh my gosh. I, I, I get it. (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) Yeah. So I always feel like writing, like as a reader, I love historical fiction, um, largely in part because it does just put you in this time and place. Um, As a, excuse me, as a writer, I find it very intimidating. Like for me, even writing a fantasy world that is, you know, loosely inspired by history, I just get so worried about 
what if I get something wrong? What if I miss something or, or, or mess something up and readers notice it? For you, like, or what would you say to someone who maybe has an idea, they want to try their hand at historical fiction, but they're afraid of getting something wrong? Well, I think that, I mean, I we've we've talked about already, but research really is so important. Um, something else that was really important for me was I had a um, consultant, um, Estelle Perunk, whose own book is coming out soon, I believe. So everybody should check that out. Um, but she uh, is an expert of that specific, of one for all specific time period in France. Uh, so she went through one for all and told me, uh, I'm not sure about this. Or, uh, I'm not sure about this. Or are we sure that this timing would have worked? Uh, you know, with me doing math, if it takes a carriage this long to go one mile, how long would it take for Tanya from Lupiac to reach Paris? I know I haven't done math like that since I was in high school. So uh, she helped me a lot just to pick up on things that maybe I hadn't noticed because I, I'm not a historian. Mm-hmm. Uh And that was incredibly helpful. I also had some early readers who by chance were fluent French speakers. So they would also say, "Ah, you used the wrong uh, tense here, which was helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess at the end of the day, it's a little bit different, like you said, for writing historical fantasy. And, And I don't consider one for all straight historical fiction because it isn't. I, I did want to pay homage to Dumas uh, and how he created this alt fantastical version of Paris. So I fudged some details specifically to mimic what he did in the three musketeers. Uh, so one of the, I think the important thing for me was what I wanted to be able to say was, okay, I have done all the research I possibly can. And if there is something incorrect in the book or I've gotten it wrong, that's a specific choice that I've made. Mm. Uh, I didn't want it to be because I missed something. And that's probably not the healthiest way of doing research and writing historical fiction because we're humans, we're flawed, we're not going to be perfect all the time. We're going to miss things. But uh, research really is just super important. And also researching in ways that you might not expect, researching uh, via uh, objects that aren't necessarily documents. So if you can go to museums, and in COVID it's difficult, but um, there are lots of museums that have exhibits online now. If you can look at um, artifacts from those time periods, so dresses and uh, tables and mantelpieces and anything from history tells a story. So you can find out so much about a historical time period just based on the kind of stitches they were using in their clothing and how they made clothing. So it's about coming at the research from multiple different 
sides. So not just the documents, not just the language, but also the actual physical objects. I love that you're speaking my language, the hands-on like primary source type of research is Mm -hmm. my favorite. And it really, it, it makes a difference to the writing. You will find and see and notice details that like this, this scholar is probably not going to put into their writing. Um, mm-hmm. So much great advice. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, I want to talk about our main character, Tanya, um, because one of the things that is so powerful about this book is that you have taken, you know, this very well-known story, the three musketeers. And like you were talking about before, there was just this, you know, masculinity. And like, one of the things that we I think love about the three musketeers is that they almost have this like invincible aspect to them. Like they, you know, they can't be harmed. They can't lose. And you, not only have you put girls into these roles, um, but you've also given us a female lead who has a disability, who is dealing with chronic illness. Um, And so like, there's so many people in her world who see her, as weak and and frail and vulnerable. And it really kind of turns this whole idea on its head. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about what inspired her, what, what, where did this idea come from? Uh, and maybe what were some of the challenges, the unique challenges that that presented for the story? Right. Uh, so Tanya uh, and her experience with POTS is directly experienced with my experience with POTS um, because when I was a teenager and I was diagnosed in when I was 14, uh, so right at the beginning of high school, I didn't have any books about characters with POTS. And to be clear, I mean, as far as we know, One for All is the first traditionally published book by a major publisher with a main character with POTS. Mm. So um, <laughs> Teenage Lily is finally getting her book. Uh, <laughs> But um, I had initially started writing One for All, um, and I didn't, in my mind, imagine Tanya as having POTS. And after a paragraph of writing, it just felt wrong. And I realized that was because I really wanted to write about fencing the way that I fence. And the way that I fence is inextricable from my experience with POTS because, I mean, when you have a condition that causes dizziness and fainting and blurred vision and headaches amongst other symptoms, fencing is going to be affected. So I wanted to be able to write about the different ways that she learns to fence with POTS. Um, And slowly that started turning into me being able to write about um, a narrative about internalized ableism and the way that people view her and how she learns to love herself, which um, while it is in a historical setting, it's very much, I think, um, it, it very clearly maps onto a modern day lens in terms of these were all things that I was thinking about myself when I was a teenager. Um, I was worried that nobody would want to be friends with a sick girl. I was you know, I had a best friend who ghosted me after I, you know, couldn't really hang out anymore, you know, be fun. Um, 
I was really worried about guys not being interested in me once they figured out that I was sick. So I wanted to put all of that into Tanya and to speak to your last point about, you know, some of the challenges of writing about that. Um, it was difficult in the way that pouring your soul onto the page is difficult because Tanya is not me, but she's definitely part of me. So because there is so much of me on the page, it was reopening old wounds that had never really healed over properly and giving them the chance to start to heal. So it was a process of extreme vulnerability, which to be fair, I think that anytime an author puts a novel into the world, it is an extreme act of vulnerability, but for one for all, it had so much, it has so much of me in it. So that required a lot of vulnerability. And I think that, um, I was very lucky in terms of my agent and my editor, because, uh, there were times, there were times, and this was probably one of the other difficult elements, is that um, sometimes the very clear way that you need to change the plot or a plot point or how you're transitioning from one scene to the next isn't possible because of Tanya's chronic illness. For example, there's a point at the beginning of the book when her house is broken into, it's the opening scene. Um, and my agent had suggested that it needed to be closer in time period to uh, the act, the beginning of um, the main story of One for All, as because the chapter one kind of serves as a as a frame. And I said, actually, that that can't really work because if Tanya had passed out and was feeling super sick just a few days ago, she's not going to be in a position where she can fence the next day mm. or two days later. She's not going to, she's clearly in the middle of a POTS flare, you know, chronic illness flare. She's not going to be able to get up and start the day. So it was a lot of um, thinking, okay, well, how do we uh, maintain the authenticity? while also while also making sure that the craft is where it needs to be and that the plot makes sense and that all those scene transitions work. So my my process it was it was very collaborative and again like I said I'm very lucky with my with my agent Jennifer Wells and my editor Melissa Warden because I would tell them something and say, hey, this actually doesn't work because of X, Y, and Z. And they would go, okay, let's try to think of something else that would work. They didn't try to push me on it or, because they knew that it would end up creating a narrative that didn't feel authentic. And at the end of the day, I don't think would have been as successful um, yeah. as One for All is. So uh, I think I wrote maybe 20 first chapters. I know <laughs> I stopped counting around 12 but um, we tried so many different things in terms of how to work around that scene transition and how to make things feel immediate. Um, and I think it ended up successful. Uh, so yes, so I think that uh, the biggest difficulties in, uh, were, were in terms of the um, one, 
opening myself up and allowing myself to be vulnerable on the page and two, uh, finding ways to edit and make sure the craft is maintained while also maintaining authenticity. Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely successful. Um, and I'm really curious because I found in my experience that, you know, sometimes a book will pose a challenge and you're at first not sure, well, how am I going to, you know, get this to work? How am I going to fill this plot hole? How am I going to make this authentic, but also do what I'm trying to do, blah, 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 whatever the problem is. And for me, I think a lot of times when we're kind of forced to move past, you know, our, our first idea, our second idea, our 12th idea for how Mm -hmm. to do this and like, keep pushing it and keep brainstorming and keep looking for solutions. But then when we finally land on something that works, it's like a hundred times better than what we'd originally tried to do. Did you kind of have that same experience as well? I think so. But also I was just so relieved at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness this is over. I mean, to be fair, I will, I hopefully will be writing a lot more first chapters in my future. So I will have to go through, hopefully not to this extreme. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not. a lot. 20 is a lot for sure. <laughs> um, but uh, I was just so relieved at that point that uh, it's like, okay, whatever, you know, everybody likes it. Great. Done. This is what it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, but looking back now that I've actually had time to distance myself from the material because I was on submission for so long and I sold, it sold at the end of 2019 and the publication day was for um, early 2022. So I had a very long lead up time. I was with the text of the book for so long that I couldn't really see it for what it was (laughs) towards the end. So now that I've had time to take a step back and, you know, uh, actually read it. Oh, I like this. Good job, Lily. This is nicely done. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I know that feeling so well. I always hate, you know, so I'm getting a bit, I'm about ready to turn in my current novel. And I'm like in that point where I've just been like stuck deep in the text for so long that I don't have the big picture of it anymore, Mm -hmm. which is always like a really nerve wracking part of the process. But then historically, and I'm counting on it to happen again, here in a few months when I'm going over page proofs and have had some distance, then you start to be like, oh, it's like a real book now. Cool. <laughs> How yeah. did that happen? Yeah. And that's the other thing. And, and there's, there's some sentences in some areas of the text that we as authors will just work so long on and overwork it. And by the end of it, we're turning it in and we're like, oh, we hate that. You know, I hate that mm-hmm. sentence so much. And then it's the sentence that all the readers are quoting in their reviews saying, oh, I love this so much. And this really resonated with me. And great. (laughs) Isn't that so funny? It's so the truth. You're absolutely Mm -hmm. right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I will say, I actually wrote down, I don't usually do this, but I wrote down my favorite quote um, from One for All (gasps) in which uh, Tanya says, I could be strong and need help at the same time, which I felt like really encapsulated so much of what the story is about. Yes. Yes. That's, I think that that was, I can't, I can't remember. I think that was a line from the very first draft. If it wasn't, it was an edited line from the very first draft because Mm -hmm. 
like you said, that really is the heart of one for all. It's the idea that needing help isn't weakness and that um, you shouldn't have to hide that and needing help isn't shameful. Yeah. Um, So I think that, like I've said, you know, while I really do think that the chronic illness representation is super important. And I think that it's going to resonate with a lot of chronically ill and disabled readers. I also think that there's a universality to Tanya's story in that anybody who's ever needed help or hasn't, you know, been good at something or hasn't, you know, just gone it alone or been able to go it alone for their entire lives, anybody is going to be able to resonate with that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think it's so hard to ask for help sometimes. Um, I know for me, I'm, you know, in my 37 year journey toward trying to figure out how to ask for help when I need it, you know, and no matter what element of your life, you know, sometimes you just need to reach out to someone and it can be, it does require some courage to do that. But like you say, it doesn't mean you're weak. It's not shameful. It's part of being human. Yeah. You know, it's this idea of, you know, being a friend to yourself. Yeah. If you, if you would, if you would, if a friend came to you and asked for help, you would, you know, I would, of course, I, I would, of course, help a friend and Tanya, of course, would help a friend, but because she has this idea in her head that she, that nobody wants to be friends with her or that nobody, you know, that she doesn't really have any real friendships. She's so worried that, um, any little thing will be the thing that makes people turn away from her say, Oh, she's just not worth it. Whereas in actuality, I mean, being friends with anybody, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be having a good time and that um, people aren't ever going to need help. I mean, I think that most of my strongest friendships are with people who um, I've gone to in times of real crisis. And I don't know how to deal with this situation or I don't know what to do. Can you give me advice? Mm -hmm. Or can you just tell me what to And I think, you know, for Tanya, that was, you know, learning that she could do that and learning that she could rely on her sisterhood was really the essence and core of the book. Yes. No. And it fits so well because of course the source material, the three musketeers has that brotherhood aspect, um, which is so integral to what that story is about. Um, And here you've done something really similar, um, with these now four musketeers. Yes. Um, and you know, for me, I usually, I love romance in a book and there is definitely some romance here, but the, the friendship storylines and how these four girls come to really trust and rely on each other, uh, is such a huge, important part of the story. You know, so here you've got both, you're writing both romance and these really lovely friendship stories. What to you are like some of the, the similarities of writing romance versus friendship and how are they different? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think that for me, just in general, I don't think that uh, people put enough importance on friendships and the, the relationship of a friendship. Um and uh, I think that we see that a lot of time in modern society. And I'm thinking about like a number of articles that go into, um, you know, how, you know, friend that go into how French, how friendships are actual relationships um, and how, you know, 
you take care of each other and how you rely on each other. But um, because I do, I do think that it's, it's kind of hard to talk about the writing the romance element of it because I'm trying not to give away any spoilers. I know. <laughs> Um, and that's why I like specifically was like, well, I'm not going to ask about the romances because yeah. that'll give everything away. <laughs> yeah. But for, I guess I think for me is that whenever anybody asks, is there a love story in One for All? I say, yes. Tanya learns to love herself. <laughs> that is the love story in One for All. It's Tanya and learning to love herself. And I think that, um, I think that uh, for me, uh, one of the ways that I figured out how to write about Tanya in friendships versus Tanya in romantic relationships is that I really wanted to write about acceptance and all its forms. So she is accepted, of course, by the other musketeers, but they all have different ways of how they show their love for her and how they accept her uh, because they're all different people and different people have different ways of showing their love. But, um, and I wanted to do that same thing with the romantic elements of One for All uh, and show um, that form of acceptance and how, you know, Tanya's, one of her big fears at the beginning of the book, her two big fears are, you know, nobody's going to want to be friends with me and nobody's ever going to want to be with me. And so I was using those relationships that are portrayed in the book to answer those questions in terms of, yes, people are going to want to be friends with you. And yes, there are guys who will want to be with you. Yeah, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything else I can actually say that uh, has any insight without accidentally spoiling at least a hundred pages of the book. <laughs> No, we definitely don't want to spoil anything. Um, I think part of the reason I asked is because I felt like there was such wonderful chemistry in these this group of girls. Um, and just as I was reading it, I just found myself thinking about that and how they interact with each other in different ways. They interact with Tanya in different ways. And yet so many of like the hallmarks of a romance story, um, being there for each other and supporting each other, getting to know each other, they were there, but of course it's, you know, more platonic and yet still, you know, kind of in a beautiful way, like hitting all of those same notes. Um, and so it just kind of made me yeah. think about it. Yeah. I think, I think that one for all is like, okay. Uh, well, I did say that, you know, the love story in one for all is Tanya learning to love herself. I do think that there are these different elements of love stories and different elements of love because there's familial love in terms of Tanya's relationship with her papa and her and her mama but there's also her friendship with the girls and her I mean it goes it, it's sisterhood and her yeah. um uh, you know redacted relationships um <laughs> <laughs> okay I have one last question um before we move on to our lightning round um, in your bio, if it might be outdated, because sometimes bios are outdated, mm -hmm. but it said that you are currently getting your master's degree. Is that accurate? It is a little bit outdated, actually. Okay. Um, it is. It's it. So I officially graduate. Did I officially grad? I, I mean, I the, the diploma is being sent to me from across the ocean. Uh, did you just I, use the words? Did I officially graduate? <laughs> 
times. We don't really have graduation ceremonies anymore in person. Um, and uh, it was very odd, uh, especially because with writing, it's so different than when you're in a field or a subject like economics or even history, where you might have some final exams, you might have some final papers, but you will have some final exams. And for my MA in creative writing prose fiction, it was okay, you hand over your, your dissertation and you're finished. Bye now. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So I, I, I officially have my MA. That's it feels okay. very strange to say out loud. <laughs> well, um, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I know, I mean, a lot of our listeners are students in high school or in college. Um, and I also know, uh, I remember those days and how hard it could be to find time to write for myself, as opposed to just always working on, you know, things I was doing for school. Um, so here you are, you've been getting your master's degree and also having this book come out. Right. What are maybe a couple of tips, um, or some advice that you would give to someone who is in that position and struggling to make time for their, um, their personal passion writing? Uh, well, first of all, I would say congratulations, because this is the the dynamic is difficult. Um, and I don't think I realized how difficult it was going to be until I actually started the program. Um, because I I wrote I I wrote and I queried and I became agented and I went on submission while I was still an undergrad. So I still managed to find time to write for myself then. But there's this shift when you get a book deal. And I mean, of course, it's, it's a huge, huge privilege to be able to say that this is a career, that this is my job, but it becomes, you're, you're not just writing for yourself anymore. You're writing in terms of, you know, you, you're under contract, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you have a book deal, so you have deadlines to meet, um, and so that started when I was at school. And for some reason, all of my deadlines for my books seemed to magically line up with my deadlines for school as well. So funny. I think it was either my second, my second round of edits uh, lined up with my very first day of uh, my master's program. And then uh, the legitimately the hour, the, the same hour that I finished my last class of right before uh, winter break, I got copy edits mm -hmm. in my inbox for one for all. <laughs> so yes, there's no rest, no break. Um, but what I learned is that one, um, it's really important to find balance and everybody will say that, but the key is to finding your balance because some people will say, oh, you have to have this amount of time for yourself and this amount of time to write, or you need to write this amount every day, which is a lie <laughs> and it's ableist and sexist and classist and all those other things. So just, you know, throw that whole entire idea away. Um, so you're a writer still, if you don't write every day, that's fine. Um, but it's about finding a balance that works for you and, you know, 
preserves your own mental health and emotional health, because at the end of the day, those are the two most important things and physical health, of course. Um, so, uh, I did a lot of editing, uh, and then going to workshop or, um, workshopping my own classmates work. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd, <laughs> which I think most writers are, but, um, I'm a nerd. So I really enjoy doing workshops and commenting on other people's work and getting feedback. So, uh, I would get all of that done really quickly. Um, of course I would, I would take my time and dedicate time to it. I don't want to make it sound like in case on the off chance, any of my uh, cohort is listening in and they're going, Lily, did you not actually give us thorough feedback? Uh, (laughs) but, um, I would do all of it at when I got at the beginning of the week. And then I would have a certain amount of days in between that day and the next workshop. So I would devote those days to working on one for all and on edits. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was also really helpful that I, I have a really great team behind me and, and my agent and my editor and everybody at FSG. So um, I don't think there was a time when I needed an extension while I was at UEA, but, but I also did know that if I needed to ask for one, that I would get it. And I think that that's also important. It's important to find a, a, a good editor who, you know, is going to have your back when it comes to making sure that one, you're healthy, you're safe, but also making sure that, you know, you, you both want the book to be the best book that it can be. And if that means taking a few extra weeks, then that means taking a few extra weeks. Obviously, as a debut author, that's a bit different for me because, you know, for somebody like you who, you know, you have lots of deadlines and lots of books, so it's more rigid. Um, but uh, for me, because there was this very long lead up time to the book publication, I had wiggle room. Uh, looking back, I think that that was really the only way that I managed it because, my gosh, I mean, the amount of work combined with edits was just, it was a lot. Yeah. No, it is a lot. Um, and I think people are surprised when I tell them that I am like routinely asking for extensions. Um, and there was a time in my career where I felt really weird about that and like I'd failed somehow, but kind of like we were talking before that sometimes you just, need to ask for help. Um, and sometimes you just need a little bit more time. And like you say, it's in everyone's best interest to have the best book possible. So if you need some extra time, that's okay. Ask for it. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Are you ready for a bonus round? Yes. All right. Cake or pie? Oh no, this is so... I thought these were going to be really quick questions. <laughs> um, I'm going to say oh, ooh, cake, but chocolate flourless cake specifically. Plotter or pantser? Oh, pantser. Fancy ball gown or comfortable breeches? Ball gown. Opulent palace or cozy cottage? cottage in your ball gown yes (laughs) what is your favorite part of writing oh uh drafting right when you get 
a new idea. Mm. How about your least favorite part of writing? Editing. (laughs) Editing. Definitely editing. (laughs) What book makes you happy? Oh, uh, Legendborn by Tracy Dion. Mm, Good one. Good choice. Mm -hmm. She was on this podcast for people who haven't listened to her episode. She was phenomenal. Uh, What are you working on next? That is a really good question. Um, And uh, (laughs) it's not one I don't, it's not one that I, I know really how to answer because um, I'm waiting on uh, my editor's feedback. Um, but I, I am working on way too many novels right now. Um, I think there's four or five, uh, and I'm working on the novel that I was working on for my MA, which is adult literary fiction. I'm working on three different YAs. Um, and, uh, the YA that I think will, I don't know. It's so hard to say now and I don't want to jinx anything. Um, (laughs) it, it leans more fantasy. So more magic, but of course swords, because there must always be swords. I mean, you've got all that fencing experience. I've got to use it. So I've got to use it for something. (laughs) What a totally useful skill for a writer. Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, where can people find you? People can find me at Lily Lanoff on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my website is www.lilylanoff.com. And there you can find all the links to pre-order one for all, um, how to find signed copies, which are being provided through East City Bookshop, fun pre-order campaign and library request campaign giveaways like character art by Nicole Deal. Uh, and also uh, my work that's currently in print and uh, work that is upcoming and uh, places where One for All will be publishing in the near future. Excellent. Lily, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a good time. I did too. Readers, definitely check out One for All. It is coming out tomorrow on March 8th. Of course, we encourage you to support your local indie bookstore if you can. If you don't have a local indie, you can check out our affiliate store at bookshop.org slash shop slash Marissa Meyer. Next week, I will be talking with Joy L. Smith about her debut ballet-inspired young adult novel, Turning. If you're enjoying these conversations, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Marissa Meyer Author and at Happy Writer Podcast. Until next time, stay healthy, stay cozy, and whatever life throws at you today, I hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier.